Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Java junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in becoming a historian and you need to make a living, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is CNN's presidential historian, in addition to the many other hats he wears. But before I introduce you to Dr. Timothy Naftali, the author of many prize-winning books, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive window into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. And then you won't miss out on the super interesting professionals that I interview every week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dr. Tim Naftali, CNN's presidential historian, a job he's had since 2016. And he's also the director of New York University's undergraduate public policy major, as well as a clinical associate professor of both public service and of history. In other words, they're dual appointments. Dr. Naftali's expertise covers everything from national security to intelligence policy and international history to U.S. presidential history. From 2006 to 2011, he was the founding director of the federal Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum in Yorba Linda, California, where he authored the library's nationally acclaimed exhibit on Watergate and oversaw the release of 1.3 million pages of presidential documents and nearly 700 hours of the infamous Nixon tapes. Prior to overseeing the Nixon Library, Dr. Naftali was the director of Presidential Recordings Program and the Kremlin Decision-Making Project at the University of Virginia's Miller Center for Public Policy. Dr. Naftali is a prolific writer and author, and his award-winning books include a biography of George H.W. Bush... The Secret History of American Counterterrorism, and most recently, with Peter Baker, Jeffrey Engel, and John Meacham, he wrote Impeachment and American History. Dr. Naftali, Tim, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm always caffeinated, and I'm delighted to go, yes. Excellent, excellent. Well, I know our young listeners, especially those who just adore history but are worried about whether or not they're going to get an academic appointment, whether they're going to get a tenured 
position and how do they make a living with it are going to really appreciate hearing all of your advice, Tim. And so let's dig into the 10 espresso shots. The first question being, what entry-level jobs are available to young people who are eager to break into this field? You have to open your mind in this current employment climate. And I, when I say current, I just don't mean in the pandemic. I mean the shifts that have occurred in the humanities, in the teaching of the humanities in the United States over the last decade or two. One of the things that, that I, when, this, when, this, when a student comes to me, when someone comes to me and says that they want to do history, the first thing I try to find out is if they have a fire in their belly about history, a passion, because you you need a really, really strong passion because this is a tough business. And it's especially tough if you don't keep your expectations realistic. This is not to argue that people shouldn't want to be a tenured professor, but people should also understand there are fantastic careers. I'm not, by the way, a tenured professor. There are fantastic careers in history that are possible if you open your mind to a career path that doesn't necessarily end up with you being the so-and-so professor of history at the such-and-such college or university. So there are entry-level positions as archivists, as government historians, as museum curators. There are working for elements of the media that need researchers because the study of history matters for contextualizing the present. So there are a number of jobs that you wouldn't necessarily associate with history that require historical training and skills and a passion for history. Fantastic. So what, in your opinion, Tim, is a useful hard and soft skill that you look for in the young people that you've hired over the years, whether it was at the Nixon Library, whether it was at the Miller Center or all of the above? Three things. Curiosity. One of the effects, I believe, of the digital revolution is that we become, all of us have become curators, not only of our own lives, we've always been curators of our own lives, but curators of information. The gatekeepers that used to be there, the small number of network news anchors and the small number of prestige newspapers. And those gatekeepers, while they exist, are now in an ocean of information. So one of the things you look for is somebody who reads broadly and thinks broadly and has a skeptical but not cynical mind. It's really important to question data and people and interpretations. But there is a difference between being skeptical of information and cynical. So I I look for open mind, curiosity, a love for information and for knowledge empathy because especially if you're at one if you want to be a historian you've got to put yourself in other people's shoes we are always writing about times and places or for the most part we're writing about times and places that we did not inhabit some of us who do current history will write about a period in which we were in a lot we're alive but but we'll be writing a part about a part of experience american experience if you're doing what i do presidential history at times or a foreign country that you weren't couldn't possibly have actually directly experienced. So you need empathy. So that's a skill, empathy, desire to do hard work. Because one of the challenges is amassing data and then making sense of it. And that it can be exhausting. But if you have that passion for solving the puzzle or puzzles, then you're willing to do that kind of effort. And the final skill is the ability to communicate, whether it's oral communication or in writing. That's so important because I find that figuring out a puzzle to the extent that I ever do is not just getting the data and then letting it form a mosaic. 
It doesn't work that way for me, at least. It doesn't just pop out. It's when I start to write about it. And as I write about it, the basic logic of grammar and of, of piecing the story together forces me to say, wait a second. Wait a moment. I don't know. Is that right? Let me check. Now, well, maybe it shouldn't be that way. So it's writing. It's the act of writing that actually is an important part of the process of interpretation. So curiosity, empathy, passion for hard work, and ultimately the ability to communicate. Those are the four skills I look for. Oh, fantastic. And I would imagine that it's almost detective-like the work that you do. You are hunting for clues to try to not necessarily solve a crime, but to get to the bottom of a big question that you have. Well, that's the way I look at history. The beauty of the historical profession, and as I hope your listeners have gleaned by now, I have a very broad view of it. The beauty of the the profession is that we debate and discuss and we approach it from different perspectives. I do think in terms of, of the historian as detective, to, to quote a, a title of a book of one of my mentors, Robin Winks, I do think of the process as actually trying to figure out a puzzle, as a whodunit, if you will. But that's just the way I approach it. That's not the way every historian approaches it. I like to choose projects that involve questions I don't have the answer to. I'm doing it because I want to know the answer. And then I want to share that answer to the extent that I got it with others. That's why I do it. Love it. So, Tim, is someone's major in the undergraduate context a deciding factor to get into your profession? In other words, if they haven't majored in history, is it a deal breaker? This is a funny question. If I wish you could see my <laughs> look on my face because I, I thought I'd major in political science in, in college. And when I switched to history, because I just found it more interesting and the teachers were better. One of the bits of advice I give of students is choose your courses by the teachers. You can always read a book, but what you're paying for and, and what you have a chance to, to experience are teachers that are good at it and very good at it. So choose choose your courses, you know, particular electives by the, by the teachers. So I had some very good professors. My point is that when I went home and I told my parents that I had switched my major, and I always shared these sorts of things with my parents. My father said, what, are you gonna become a historian? And I said, no, 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 dad, I'm gonna, I always thought I would go into public service. Well, I became a historian, but I laughed because I did not go into history to become a historian. I felt then and feel to this day that history is the most powerful major in the humanities because everything that happened before this instant is history. So that it, it requires you to learn about a lot of things. And in the end, you are just trying to figure out human beings, which I think is a a worthy goal, whatever your particular profession might be. The converse is true, too. You don't have to be a history major to become a historian. But you do need to have taken a course that forces you to think about cause and effect and narrative and agency and personality and character. There are many, many, many important historians who never got a PhD in history. And I suspect some of them weren't even history majors. So you don't have to be a history major to become a historian. I just would say, why wait? Why not start (laughs) studying history now? So that's my response. (laughs) Okay. Well, you've sort of answered the next espresso shot about how important it is to have a graduate degree in order to succeed in your field. And of course, I guess it depends what your definition of success is. But if it is to become a professor, what are the most useful degrees to have? Well, to become a professor, you need a PhD in history. 
but that doesn't mean you're going to become a professor. And, and I'm saying, again, I, I want to make clear to, to everyone, I, I don't know what, what the Willy Wonka ticket is to being a Regis professor of this or that at, at some school. What I do know is that in order for the guild to accept you as a possible hire, you do need a PhD. But you don't need a PhD to do historical work in other parts of what I would describe broadly as the historical profession. A master's degree can allow you to, to teach history and help younger people become interested in history and teach them how important the discipline is. A master's degree is all you really need if you want to go into, well, let me put it this way. With a master's degree, you can certainly go into the museum world. You certainly can go into the archives world. I think that more and more there's a, a desire for a PhD in, in uh, library sciences and, and museum studies if you want to teach those areas. But to be a, to be a producer, of history, you don't need necessarily a PhD. Your writing skills can get you into, get you attention with a BA, but there you need a lot of luck and timing and of course a lot of skill because you don't, wouldn't have in that case the profession to fall back on. Professors, full-time archivists have a job that they can count on to bring in income while they do their work on a book or an article or on a museum exhibit. That's a good thing to fall back on, those kinds of jobs. The job of being a professor is a lot harder than it used to be to acquire. First of all, enrollments have gone down in some humanities programs, so universities are not replacing professors one-to-one, -one, and so the jobs are shrinking. Yeah. Well, we are going to get into all the different jobs that you have had over the course of your fascinating career in our main time for coffee interview. And our listeners can check out show notes to see if that episode has already dropped. Tim, what kind of life experiences? So those experiences we have outside the classroom, do you think are most useful for someone who's starting out in this field? Well, the advice and I say, say this because if it's the advice I give my, my students, and so I want to share it with, with your listeners. The advice I give them is that you should always be prepared to learn something new, but it's a heck of a lot easier to do when you're in your 20s. And so in your 20s, learn as many new skills as you can. Languages, ability to use different software, acquire skills. Each skill you acquire will deepen your empathy. It'll either deepen your empathy of a foreign culture or deepen your empathy of some aspect of the great and broad world of technology. Those skills are of general use. Then become an expert in something. In history, because of the proliferation of new information due to the fact that the, our government, if you're interested in national security matters, has declassified an awful lot, because of the proliferation of new data and the shrinking number of tenure track historians and the, at least up till recently, the shrinking number of tenure track historians who are interested in political history, although I think that's changing now, there are a lot of fascinating puzzles out there that people could work on and be published for solving or at least approaching. And so you, a young person who acquires skills and then seeks to apply them to a puzzle or two may find that they gain notice much sooner than they would have expected. I tell undergraduates that there is no reason why they can't produce a publishable piece of work 
that pushes the ball forward in the in, in history. And they look at me and they say, no, 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 you've got to be, you know, older and more experienced. And I said, no, there are puzzles out there to be solved. You are smart as any tenured professor. You don't have the experience. You haven't written as much. You'll have to learn to edit your work. You know, you'll, you, there are things to learn. OK, but the fact of the matter is there is so much out there to be learned. We're not re- we're we are more than just revising history because that's important too. That has to do with different approaches, different questions, different philosophies. We're not just doing that. We're also actually building new narratives because of new data. So there is a world of historical contribution for someone with a BA. All they need is to feel empowered and confident and a friend to read their work and give them a little bit of helpful criticism. But the world is out there waiting for new voices. Oh, what great advice. Tim, what for you is the best part of being a historian, of being a presidential historian? Learning something new. I mean, going to puzzle, as I said, I'll give give you examples. I'm writing a book about Kennedy, which would be like the 5,600th book on John F. Kennedy, right? <laughs> right. Why, why, would I, why would I bother? Well, I bothered because when I was working at the Miller Center, the U.S. government started to declassify John F. Kennedy's tapes. And I used some of them for a book on the Cuban Missile Crisis with Alexander Fersenko called One Hell of a Gamble. But those Cuban Missile Crisis tapes comprise, oh, maybe 15% of all of Kennedy's tapes. What about the other 85%? What was he saying in those tapes? Well, for the most part, very few scholars have integrated the rest of the magnificent Kennedy tapes into an overall portrait of him as president. The tapes were not finally fully reviewed and largely declassified until 2013, only seven years ago. In addition, in the last decade and a half, new national security documents about Kennedy have become available. So the terrain is full of new evidence. Now, that doesn't mean every new bit of evidence matters, but the new evidence plus the fact that we've learned a lot since that first couple of waves of Kennedy scholarship came through, that we're asking slightly different questions, that means the time is ripe for a reassessment of Kennedy, not just by me, but by a number of people. So it's the excitement of actually seeing a new puzzle, a new portrait come together. Also, I I just wrote a a little bit. You mentioned the book, uh, Andrea, you uh, you were nice enough to mention Impeachment in American History that I co-authored with Peter Baker and Jeffrey Engel and John Meacham. And I had spent a lot of time thinking about Watergate at the Nixon Library. But I had and I had done some interviews of of folks who had worked on the impeachment inquiry. But I hadn't sat down as a historian and pieced together the story of those last few months of the impeachment inquiry. And I did it for the book. And I learned so much. I learned so much about the role of the fragile coalition of Southern Democrats and Republicans who decided to vote for impeachment. And you'd say, well, Democrats, of course they voted for impeachment. Well, no, Southern Democrats were voting against the interests of their constituents. Their constituents, for the most part, were pro-Nixon. And of course, Republicans had this pressure from their leadership not to vote against a president of their own party. Well, it turns out a couple of them wrote diaries. I hadn't looked at those because I didn't need to. You weren't paying me to do that when I was director of the Nixon Library, but I had time to do them two years ago. Well, the (laughs) story of these people and how they tried to understand their public duty and their constitutional duty, and and they were serious about it and they cared about it and they loved this country. It It was beautiful to see. Now, that's what 
sometimes you get when you're a historian. That's the moment when you're sharing somebody's past reality and learning about your own world through them that you have those that moment of eureka. And this happens more often than not, at least I'm fortunate in my career, this has happened quite a few times on various projects. So for me, the joy of history is in the doing of it. And lately, or in the last, you know, throughout my career, I've been lucky to be able to assume that there's going to be a eureka moment or two just over the horizon if I keep working at it. The way you describe that, in some ways, resonates with me as a former journalist. And I think there's a similar, although often not quite as in-depth, because a lot of us didn't have the time to spend months, let alone years, researching something. But that feeling of like, oh, wow, I just learned something that is new, that is important, that I want to share. And it's a really, I, I, I'm sure that you've, you have and still have this feeling. It's so great then to have this and take it from the draft that you're working on and share it with students. And I try, I'm, I'm sure I'm not perfect, but I try when I share it with students, I tell them, look, I, I've worked on this. You may not read this anywhere else because it's, you know, it's a work in progress and I'm, I'm, it may not be right, but let me explain to you why I think this. And it's great for me to be the discipline that that imposes on me to explain why I believe this. But also, I think it's it's important for students to understand that history is not inaccessible, that it's not something that's in a leather bound book that you're never going to read, that's locked in a library you're never going to visit. So well said. So what about the flip side, Tim? What is the part, let's say, of your current job as CNN's presidential historian that sucks the most? As you said, I, I have several concurrent jobs. I would say that one of the one of the challenges, I think, is encouraging students to do their reading and sometimes to free them of the assumption that there is a strategy to succeeding in the classroom. That, I, 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 that doesn't have to do with the, the, my CNN responsibility. Mm-hmm. Those are just those are fun. I think in the case of the CNN job, I sometimes I may take a little longer to put something into perspective. Maybe it's because my my friends always kid me for I like really researching and researching and researching. And so there are moments when I might be asked to put something into context. And I don't know if I know enough yet because I'm not sure how things are going to turn out. But that's part of the business. And it is fun for me as a historian to share with viewers my thinking process. I try not to give an immediate conclusive answer because I think that the world is in flux. And one of the advantages of being a historian is you're looking behind you and you've seen how things worked out. So the challenge for the historian looking backwards is to make clear the contingencies, the what ifs, because the student should know that it's not all predetermined. And for the historian, the television historian looking ahead to make clear that there are contingencies. It's a balancing act. Now, to get back to the classroom. So one of the challenges I've, and I, I talk to my colleagues about this and, and students too. One of the challenges I find is that some students in some high schools are trained to take tests very well. And to take tests very well, you have to suss out what the professor is looking for. I, this is my sense of it. And that discourages free thinking. And my job 
is not to make you able to spit back what Tim Naftali thinks about the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's so boring. I mean, I think I have some interesting ideas about it, but my gosh, it's useless to you in the future. When are you ever gonna need to tell, to share with anybody what I happen to think about something in the past? But if I've made it possible for you to figure out the international system or our political system or the nature of the presidency, if I've helped you learn the right questions or the useful questions to ask. So that in the future, when I'm not standing on your shoulder, I really shouldn't, I'm not really ever standing on your shoulder, but I meant, you know, philosophically standing on your shoulder, grading you. If I'm not there that you can ask questions and do and be your own historian, be your own analyst. So if you're just taking a class to do well on an exam and you're not picking up skills, I'm not helping you for the future. I'm helping you for the transcript. But in the end, the transcript only gets you so far. In the end, you're gonna have to prove your talents to some future employer. And I wanna be, I wanna have helped you succeed in that job, whatever it is, because you're, you're able to think critically and share analytically what you've learned. So beautifully put. That reminds me of a scene, was it from the paper chase? In which that very tough lawyer who everyone, excuse me, professor who everyone was so afraid of, maybe it was in constitutional law, said something to them about, I'm teaching you to think like lawyers or do you remember that scene? Well, I I mean, it's Kingsfield, I think is his name. Yes. And it was Houseman and John Houseman was the actor. I think I remember it. He had a, yes, I, I, what I want to do is not teach somebody what to think, but how to go about thinking. Yes. I'm just Googling it while while we're speaking here. Let's see. Oh, you come in here with a skull full of mush and you leave thinking like a lawyer. That's kind of, you know, you're teaching them to think like a historian. I try to make them teach uh, to think like a historian. And, and but I, I also, I mean, want to share that what I, the, the people I have on my shoulders are some of the best professors from college and a, and a few teachers from high school, and actually one from elementary school that I still think about. Mm-hmm. And I remember the way in which they taught us. I mean, they weren't teaching me personally. They were taught us. And I try my best to approach or approximate their skill set. That's what I try to do. And none of them were getting us to learn something by rote. Not one of them. They all wanted to inspire us to move the ball forward ourselves. Love it. So, Tim, what is the best career advice you've ever gotten? I've had some bad career advice. (laughs) Let's not share that. (laughs) Oh, the best career advice. Well, I, actually, I think it was my advisor, not really career advice, it was my advisor in college who told me to take classes based on the professor, not on the topic, which is really smart advice. Amazing. That was really smart advice. Terrific. Okay. Well, two final espresso shots. What movies, if any, or Netflix, Amazon, Hulu shows, or whatever you may stream, or books, 
do you think accurately depict this profession? I don't know if it accurately depicts this profession, but the mischievous spirit of Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society, I find inspirational. Loved not, it. I, not that I suggest you rip books. I don't say you should go out there and rip pages out of books. I think, oh, I said Henry, Henry V, Henry IV, Henry V. There are great historical dramas. And I'm not saying the history is very good. I mean, Shakespeare's, Shakespeare riffed. Think of Shakespeare as a jazz musician, okay? And he's riffing uh, off of something classical. I mean, his, his histories are not really histories. But for me, history, uh, movies that show pivotal moments in history make the point that history matters. So it's not movies about historians. My God, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure I'd ever watch one. I guess Indiana Jones, but he's not even a historian. I suppose all of us would like a little bit to be Indiana Jones. But it's the it's movies that show those pivots and the pivotal moments in history. I mean, uh, Spielberg's Lincoln, for example, was remarkable. So I, I would say that for me, those are those recapture the spirit of what I'm trying to understand, and they're also fun to watch. Lately, I watched Mrs. America. Oh, how is it? Well, I loved it, and I loved it because it was, it's not simply the story of Phyllis Schlafly, but it was the story of the feminist movement from different perspectives. And unfortunately, the ceiling that, that men created and maintained for all of these women in the 1970s, and sadly, to some extent, still maintained. But it's a beautiful portrayal and I, I think they've tried very hard to be as close to the documented record as possible. And it's well acted. I mean, it's the most recent example of the history that comes alive. And for a historian, that's what that's what you that's what you want. I, I want to add something that maybe maybe you don't know about Andrea. I, I was a technical advisor to Designated Survivor for its Netflix season. Oh. And so I had an opportunity to contribute not just sort of technical advice on certain aspects of the intelligence world, but actually to help shape a few of the subplots. And that was an exciting opportunity to think about how you tell a story visually, as opposed to, you know, on paper. And that was a very interesting experience. And also how you, how you will seed the clouds foreshadow, which is something you need to be able to do in, in writing, obviously, but how you do it visually and watching real professionals, real professional writers uh, in the television world do it and learning from them, but participating to a certain extent. So it, it was a, it was an opportunity to see television from the, from the other side. And for me, the goal here is to interest students in being creative and imaginative and trying to figure things out. So I think that television and, and the movies can do that without necessarily portraying the life of the solitary historian. Mm, fantastic. Well, we will include all of those shows in our show notes. Final espresso shot. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about your profession, Tim? Java junkies would be surprised to learn about how much uncertainty there is in my profession, how difficult it is for graduate students to get a job, how there are, I think, obstacles in the way in which we teach history at the graduate level 
that are not helping students prepare themselves for the broad scope of jobs that need historical training and learning. I think if, if you're, some of your Java junkies are graduate students, they'll know all of this, of course. But for the others, they may not understand how difficult the profession actually is. And though if you succeed at it, it's, you know, a dream. But it's very, very difficult to succeed. And, and the profession is not necessarily a meritocracy. Accident, timing, contacts, there are all kinds of things that intervene. You may be the best person, I don't know how you would describe it. You may have written the most important new piece of work on some subject, and you come on the market and there isn't a job for a person with your specialty. And there isn't maybe one for a few years, and by the time the job opens up, someone else has appeared, or so you don't have a job, at least as a tenured professor or a tenure track person. So this is a very tough field. And I think the future of the field depends on graduate programs preparing people for brilliant careers that do not involve tenure. And I feel very passionate about this, and that, I, that some schools make success predicate or predicate success on becoming a tenured professor of history somewhere. And I don't think that's fair. I think there are successful, rewarding careers that have nothing to do with becoming, as a historian, that have nothing to do with becoming a tenured professor at a university. And I think we have to enable people and empower people to seek those jobs as their first choice, not seeking them because they couldn't get something else. Well, I think the, the historical field is so much broader and so much more exciting and interesting than necessarily being a tenured professor somewhere. And I would, you know, if I, I'm not in a position, I, I don't teach graduate students and I'm not in a position of shaping institutions. This is just me speaking, but I would so encourage graduate programs to start to train historians for the jobs that exist and do it proudly. And those jobs are in fields other than high academia. Amen. I believe that I believe that is important because otherwise what's going to happen is people are not going to go into the field and the field is going to die out and it's going to lack the power, the strength, the diversity that it needs and deserves because it's got to reflect the country. Absolutely. Well, listen, for those of you who want to learn how Tim has used his love of history and his academic training in history in so many different ways. Check out show notes to see if his main time for coffee interview has already dropped because you are in for a treat. Tim, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. Those students at NYU are so lucky to have you as a professor. And CNN is so fortunate and all of its viewers to have you as its presidential historian. Thank you, Andrew. I'm lucky to be at both places. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at 
time, the number 4, coffee.org, or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. 